Uh, glad to be back. It's been a while. Lots has happened since I saw you last. Where does Bob usually stand? I don't want to be a description. Okay, good. I thought I would go up here, but you know, you're always afraid when you're in someone else's house to uh, end up in the wrong place and cause a distraction. Yeah, lots has happened since we were here last, and um, you know, I've kept in touch with Bob, how you guys are doing as a congregation. We've had similar experiences at our church going through COVID, and um, you know, what a difference a year makes. I mean, last Easter, we were cowering in our houses at home, and I had a thought that I would take my guitar and my amplifier and put it out on the front stoop and uh, just crank it up and start playing songs and preach to my neighbors. And I didn't do that. I should have. But uh, I don't know all my neighbors all that well, and I thought maybe the police would come. Who knows? (laughs) We live in a weird age still. I'll talk to you this morning about how the Lord works and the need that we have to come back time and again to his character, his love for us, his grace, his mercy, because our circumstances at times uh, make it really difficult to see the Lord. And uh, I want to mention to you a man, some of you may know him, I'm not sure, but his name is Mike Holberg. Uh, Mike is a 46-year-old husband and father of three a longtime missionary to international students, more recently at Texas A&M University. And uh, sadly, Mike was called home during COVID in January. He was one of those that kind of like right after Christmas and just never really was able to get over that. And uh, there are many then, and I'm sure still asking this question, why Lord, why Mike, you know? a man of faith, a man who's committed his life to serving others, proclaiming the gospel, uh, certainly needs in his family, a father of three and a husband. Why? Why Mike? And with our limited perspective, you know, we can't begin to understand the purposes behind what happened in Mike's life and for his family. And in our pain and confusion, we'd we'd like to know the answer. Maybe we, wanna, we don't say it out, out loud, but uh, sometimes we'll say, I can't wait to get to heaven. I want to know why that happened. It's almost like God has a, you know, give a, a defense for his ways. And uh, we go too far down that road, we get into real trouble, right? But we think that way sometimes. We want to know the answers. Perhaps we would think, we think that would bring us comfort if we understood the Lord in his works, but we don't. We don't understand. There are many times. I'm sure you've been there. And at some point in the life of every believer, we're brought to this question, why, Lord? I recall a close friend in church planting whose dreams for a vibrant and engaging church in his city slowly ebbed away with the dwindling of resources and energy and people. And I remarked to him, the Lord does all things well, inscrutably so. This was less than a year before we went through the same experience with our church plant. It was inscrutable, meaning that we could not understand his ways, even with the most careful examination and persistent inquiry. We prayed, we worked, and we observed the work of the Lord that was beyond our understanding. 
This year in February brought another round of trials for our congregation. You know, after the snowstorm came through and things came back on, we had, you know, inches of water on our first floor of our building. And even several of our families had flooding. And right after we kind of got over that, and then we found out that a key family, the, the wife in that family is diagnosed with cancer. And it's inoperable and it's, it's really, really bad. And we ask again, why, Lord? And this doesn't mean that the Lord has not provided for us. No, to the contrary, we've actually seen him rescue us in so many ways through the years. And we're glad uh, and can gladly sing with God's people, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. I love that old chorus. His mercies never come to an end. Join me. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. We need to sing that in the darkest of hours to ourselves. God is always good. During the flooding, he provided so many friends that came and helped us move furniture and remove standing water, and then we got almost immediate help from our insurance company, and when no one else could get a demo crew in, they were there right away. It's incredible. In the end, we only were prevented from worshiping one Sunday in our building. That was a great blessing. Yet in his wisdom and in the secret counsel of his will, he chose an outcome that we could not understand. And at that moment, we needed the prayer of Elisha. Lord, open our eyes to see from 2 Kings 6. For when he opens our eyes, we not only see his work unfold, but more importantly, we see the love and the grace of God on full display. That's where we're going to be this morning, 2 Kings chapter 6. I invite you to join me there. On your phone or with your Bible, we're going to be reading verses 8 to 23. Now, the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. The man of God, that's actually Elisha, it's being referred to here, sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. 
So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Then Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. When they had come into Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those you have taken captive with your sword, with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the marauding bands of Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. What an incredible account of your grace and mercy and your power on display. And we ask, Lord, that we would not only marvel at your work, but also see Christ presented through this passage. And we want to keep our eyes fixed upon him today and every day. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Sometimes I think about the Old Testament uh, like a coral reef and like scuba diving. My wife loves to snorkel and uh, she likes to get to the beach and try to see fish and things underneath the ocean. I like doing that because she likes doing that. But, <clears throat> but when you go into the Old Testament sometimes, you've got to have some context. You need, in a sense, you need your mask and your fins and your snorkel so that you can enjoy what is there and see what's there. And uh, without those things, the coral reef is not all that fun. You get salt water in your eyes. You can't really see anything. And so I want to start with a little bit of context. Uh, this first point, an age of turmoil, a day of disaster, is just describing where we are in the Old Testament, where we are in God's plan of redemption, so that we can see more clearly what's going on in this passage. So this uh, account happens during the 9th century B.C., about you know, 950 years before the coming of Christ. And the nation of Israel uh, that had been led by King David and then his son Solomon, had fractured into two kingdoms at this point, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And there was no sign at this point that there would be any healing in the division. If you can imagine the civil war in the United States kind of ending with a truce and the northern and the southern states still being divided, that's kind of what was going on at that time. And instead uh, of trying to bring a healing between God's people, the two kings and the two kingdoms, they often would ally together against foreign and even domestic threats. And they were strengthening their own power and keeping that ongoing division going, which was not God's plan, right? Um, the northern kingdom was called Israel, and sometimes it's called Samaria that we heard today. But that's because the capital city of Israel, the northern kingdom, was Samaria. The southern kingdom was called Judah, for their kings were the descendants of David from the tribe of Judah. Both kingdoms were surrounded at that time by powerful enemies. They were kind of like minor states in what I call the ancient Near East Cold War. <clears throat> there were two like superpowers, the kind of Babylon or 
whatever kingdom was present in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, sometimes Assyria, sometimes Babylon, and Egypt to the south. And both kingdoms were tempted to ally themselves with foreign nations for protection, something God had forbidden because he was to be their protector. Uh, Both kingdoms suffered from terrible leaders who introduced and endorsed the worship of idols and foreign gods, in addition to and even in replacement of Yahweh, their covenant God. And the consequence of their idol worship and disobedience uh, was marked by frequent invasions by marauding bands and other countries that tried to take them over. Of course, they suffered a lot during those times. And 2 Kings 6 gives a good example of one of those marauding bands, the Aramaeans, who were kind of located in modern-day Syria. And your Bible might call them the Syrians because of that. But uh, at the time, the name was the Aramaeans. And they were a warlike people who lived just to the north of Israel and uh, around the modern city of Damascus. And I want you to notice how the passage reveals the inner council of the Aramean king. Isn't that interesting? We hear actually his <laughs> war council discussing what's going on as he seeks to ambush and defeat the Israelite army. He says, "Will you tell me which one of you, which one of us is for the king of Israel? You know, we have a spy here. Who is it? And they say, no, my lord, it's Elisha, the prophet, who tells the king of Israel the words that you speak even in your bedroom. So he gives the command, go and see where he is that I may send and take him. And it was told him saying, behold, he's in Dothan. So he sent horses and chariots, a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And this was the day of disaster for Elisha and his servant, right? Having saved the king of Israel by warning him many times, they themselves were not tipped off that the Syrian army was coming for them. Left exposed, they awoke to find themselves surrounded by an entire army. And it mentions here all the three divisions, right? You have the horses, the chariots, and the infantry. It's not some small force. It's like the main body of the Syrian army is surrounding the city. And it's likely the Syrians would have spared the city from attack if only they would turn over Elisha and his servant. We'll make it easy on the city if you give us who we're looking for. There was no escape this time for Elisha, and no wonder his servant was terrified. What about your day of disaster? Those times when you see the circumstances lining up and there's no escape, right? Uh, I remember well the night before my friend and father-in-law, Chuck, passed away. Many of you know him uh, from his time here at your church. We talked about his health issues, and, um, you know, I said, what do you think the Lord's doing in your life, Chuck? And he said, I'm pretty sure I know what, where he's leading me, but I, I, I don't like it. <laughs> I said, well, we don't like it either. <laughs> but it's clear that the Lord is calling you home. The good shepherd's coming for you. There are days when you know there are circumstances that the Lord intends for you to go through because there isn't a way of escape. We know from the word of God that the trials that we go through are from his hand. He could have prevented the capture of Elisha, as we have seen in the case of the king of Israel, but God chose not to. God had something more important 
more powerful in mind that can only be revealed through the day of disaster. And I want you to think about this question. Are, are you willing, are we willing to see what God is doing to glorify himself through our days of disaster? That's, that's hard. It's difficult. And this is the moment that Elisha bows in prayer. But how different his prayers are to ours. You know, I would be praying for deliverance. Take this trial away. We don't want to be captured by the Syrians. We don't want to be, they likely would have been killed, right? If he's the spy and tells the king we're, we're going to ambush him, that we need to kill him. I would pray uh, as James and John did, rain fire down upon the Syrians. Wipe them out. Let leprosy break out among the ranks. You spend much time in the Old Testament, you know there are other times when other foreign armies surrounded Jerusalem, surrounded Samaria, and they would have a battle with themselves in the middle of the night. They'd get confused on who's there, and God's people would wake up in the morning, and they're all gone. But he didn't do that this time. But that's what I'd be praying for. But it's not what Elisha prayed for. He doesn't pray for deliverance. He prays for sight, spiritual insight into what is really going on, what the Lord is doing. In terror from the physical threat, the servant, by contrast, had lost all sight of the God of the prophet. We ask the question, is God really with us? Whose side is he really on? And certainly, he's not on the side of the Syrians. Paul reminds us in Romans 8, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And the answer is no one. No one can be against us. No one can oppose God. And whatever could happen to Elisha and his servant in that moment can only happen by the will of God for them. But Elisha doesn't stop at praying for his servant. He also prays for the Syrians. Did you notice that? The prayers for the Syrians? He actually prayed for his enemies in the moment that they are set on capturing and killing him, which I find to be incredible. I don't think I'm there yet. <laughs> That's where God wants us to be in this passage. So one lesson from this passage, I think, is the centrality of prayer for the believer. In prayer, we submit our will and our desires to the will of God and his provision. Our eyes are moved from the problem before us to the God who rules over us with a faithful, never-ending love. The hymnist reminds us what peace we often forfeit, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Amen? Amen. Now let's see how the Lord answers the prayers of Elisha. In the answer to both prayers, we finally will see the purpose of God to reveal himself in glorious power and incredible grace. The first answer is a literal answer, a display of the armies of God who surround the Syrian army. Elisha asked that his servant be able to see how many are with us, and the true balance of power. For the Syrians are outnumbered and surrounded by a far superior force. And imagine if the Lord had unleashed his legions at that moment. It would have been over before anybody even knew what was happening. The ambusher has been ambushed. I love that. There's an irony in this uh, passage, you know, that the Lord is actually using Elisha to get the Syrians in the right place where they can be surrounded themselves after having tried to ambush the king of Israel. 
<clears throat> Sadly for many believers, though, this is the point of the passage. They don't keep reading. They just kind of get to this point. There's more with us than against us. As if the armies of God are straining at the leash to swoop down and intervene in every trial in your life. And don't we love to fixate on the angelic hosts and speculate about the chariots of fire? You know, it's almost like the, the veil of heaven or eternity has been kind of pulled back a little bit, and we get to see something that we don't normally see, which is the spiritual world, what's going on. There are many places like that in the Bible, and we like to stop here and think about that. It's very interesting to me. I'm sure it is to you, but it isn't the main point of the passage. And it's helpful to question this kind of thinking because the vision of the Lord's army by the servant was not for his doctrine of angels. You know, it's not like he's missing some understanding about the angels. And Elijah says, can we inform him a little bit more about the armies of God? No, the vision of the angels, it's not about the hosts of the Lord. It's about the Lord of hosts. He is the one in command, and his power is greater than any earthly ruler or weapon, even modern nuclear weapons. And if he is with you, who or what can stand against you? And that's what he needed to see. That's what we need to see. The Lord of hosts is with us. This becomes even more clear with Elijah's second prayer. For the Lord is not merely revealing himself to the servant who has forgotten his God. He is graciously revealing himself to a people who have never known this God, the Aramaeans. God answers Elisha's second prayer with a gracious blindness that allows Elisha and his servant to gently lead them by the hand to Samaria. Can you imagine that? Guys, this is not where you want to go. Come with us. We'll take you where you want to go. An entire army of blinded men led single file all the way to the capital city of their enemies. When I think about this, I think about uh, there's a famous photograph from World War I, and it's all these British soldiers that are being led single file, and they had been gassed by mustard gas. And their eyes are like covered with bandages. And each one has a, a, a hand on the shoulder of the one in front. And there's hundreds of them. They're being led back through the chinches to the aid station. Something like that is going on here. And it's probably not too far off to assume that they dropped their weapons and left their chariots and their horses behind, right? <clears throat> they have been completely disarmed. And in this way, they were led not home, but to the heart of Samaria, the capital city of Israel, the very people that they were trying to kill and ambush. And here they faced a king and a people who were set on killing them, which is only natural, right? In fact, the king of Israel is interpreting the circumstances uh, the way that we would. This is the answer. God has given our enemies over to us. Now we can destroy them instead of them destroying us. This is what a human victory would look like, but that is not God's plan. Instead, the prophet commands them to prepare a feast, to bless these men with a fellowship meal, and to send them home. This is a physical, tangible example of grace. Grace being God's undeserved favor. What the Syrians deserved was not God's favor. 
but what they got from God was great grace. Now, I want you to use a little bit of what I call uh, holy imagination at this point. Uh, This is trying to fill in the rest of the story that's not mentioned. But can you imagine what their homecoming would have been like? They get home. They say, how did the battle go? Did you kill the prophet? Well, not exactly. Where are your chariots and your horses and your weapons? Well, you see, we were disarmed by the God of Israel. Why don't you tell us what happened? We were blinded and led to Samaria, where we enjoyed a feast with the Israelites, and then we were allowed to return home. Can you imagine the king hearing that report? What about the wives of the soldiers? You get home, you walk through the front door. Did you win? You came back, you're all in one piece, I'm so happy. How did the battle go? You're like, well. In saving the army of Syria, God revealed his great grace to his enemies. They were saved from certain death, not because of who they were, but because of who God is, a God of mercy and grace. Having returned home, each was a missionary to his people, for surely they related what happened to them and the surprising mercy they had experienced. And that explains why the end of the passage says that the Arameans no longer raided Israel after that. They responded to the grace that they had received. But the story doesn't end there. We find in Luke 24 that after the resurrection, Jesus taught the apostles that all of the Old Testament speaks of him. And we want to ask this question, where do we see Christ in this passage? So we're going to go through it again, looking for the story of Christ. The prayers of Elisha, as we saw, are really asking that the Lord of hosts would reveal himself to his people. Hebrews 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers through prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. Jesus comes as the last of the prophets through whom God speaks to us. Like the Syrians, we are in rebellion to God in our natural condition, and we're blind to his power and grace. In John chapter 9, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. We are desperately in need of our blindness being removed so that we can see Jesus for who he is, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. We may at times, sometimes as believers, kind of forget what it's like to be spiritually blind, having seen the Lord through the scriptures and having our spiritual sight given to us by the Holy Spirit, but spend time with your neighbors, the people that are around you. I spent Friday afternoon with one of my neighbors, and we were having conversation, and I was just, again, praying for him, just saying, you know, he, he doesn't know the Lord, and he's blind to his spiritual need. He's completely uh, blind to it. And it's in our blindness and rebellion that the true prophet, Jesus, leads us gently by the hand. Where? To to God, right? To himself. But coming into God's presence as sinful people is not a safe place to be. When the, when the scales 
fall off of our eyes and we realize that we have come into contact with a holy, perfect God and we are sinners. We only feel condemnation from the law of God. It proclaims they deserve death, which is true, actually, according to God's word. The wages of sin is death. But in that moment, we have a greater prophet who says, no, prepare a table for them. Prepare a table for my enemies. Very soon this morning, we'll share at that table together a fellowship meal. And offered there in that feast uh, is a representation of restored relationship that we've been forgiven. We have a new relationship with God. And it reminds us of his faithfulness Jesus' faithfulness in life and in death for us. He lived a perfect life and gives us his perfect obedience, his righteousness. And he died the death that we deserved because of our sins. I want you to think about yourself as the Syrians who have been brought into a place and instead of receiving what we deserve, we are, our eyes are opened, and the prophet of God, Jesus, is saying, no, don't do that. Prepare a table for them. I ask you today, as rescued rebels, how did you come here to this place, disarmed and feasting? The mercy of God and Christ led you here, opened your eyes, and gave you the table of restored relationship. Isn't that incredible? Like the Arameans, may we leave this place of feasting today, this place of resting in the kindness of God. He is at work in all our circumstances to reveal his power and love for us in Christ. We may ask, why, Lord? And the answer is because we need to see his power and grace revealed over and over again. Lord, give us eyes to see. I want to finish with uh, one of my favorite passages from Hebrews later on. We were in Hebrews 1 earlier. This is from chapter 12. The author of Hebrews is trying to remind a group of Christians that are going through their own day of disaster, lots of persecution. They're tempted to return to a Judaism without Jesus. And he's, the entire book is an argument for why. We can't do that. And the conclusion statement in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 1, says this. He says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, those are people in the Old Testament that witnessed to us about God's faithfulness. Elisha would be one of them. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that's what we need. In the days of disaster and even in the days of placid peacefulness. We need our eyes fixed on the one 
who is always saying, no, no. We're not going to kill those people that keep sinning against God. <laughs> We're going to make a table for them. And in that table, we'll see our sins forgiven and our fellowship restored. Let me close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what an incredible moment we know from the response of the Arameans that they understood the great grace that they had received, and their lives were changed. They no longer came marauding Israel. And we pray, Lord, that in understanding your great grace and mercy to us in Christ, that we would be transformed as well. We pray for uh, thankfulness and appreciation for what you've done, but also uh, growing in our love for you and our love for others and displaying the fruits of your spirit at work in us. And we pray that you would do that today through this word preached and through the table that we get to enjoy together here shortly. In your name we pray, amen.